Tonight, beloved, we continue our study in Thomas Watson's uh, study of the Lord's Prayer, the sixth petition, the second part. And uh, I think it'll be a little briefer, except for the fact that I'm going to use that as an opportunity to share, not, I shouldn't say quite a bit, but significant uh, excerpts from an article by uh, Dr. Thomas that were extremely good and relate so well to where we are in our study. Um, I think we'll still be finished a little early, but uh, just to give you a sense of where we'll be going tonight. And uh, again, uh, let's recite together the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, just a review for Matthew. Uh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil is the section we're looking at now. Remember, in a little while, we're going to learn how that relates to saying, deliver me from the influence of the evil one, but first deliver us from the evil of sin itself, that we wouldn't give in to the temptation, that we wouldn't do what we're being tempted, that we wouldn't sin. We've looked at the evil of sin. We've looked at contrasting it, comparing it with other things that we are more likely to say, please deliver me from, especially affliction. And we are learning that sin is much worse than affliction. It's much worse than death. It's much worse than hell. And uh, we looked at a, a number of things uh, in terms of uses uses to make of that. We're going to pick up our study tonight. Uh, and... Um, uh, we're in use, oh no, excuse me, we're in the exhortations now. What were we looking at first was use one, they were, uh, he called it for our education, I believe. No, for our instruction. So the uses or the applications of what we've been learning uh, were for our instruction. The, the ones that we're looking at now are for our exhortation. So they're a little bit more uh, applicable and, you know, come on, let's do this. <laughs> you know, let's not do that. And, um, but also guys, you need to sit down. Um, uh, but they're meant to be more ap- applying to us. What we're learning challenging us. Uh, we're not done, although we're getting closer. And actually, as I look ahead, I'm a little bit, I don't want to say sad, but I'm like, oh, wow, we're I don't know, maybe a few more weeks. We might be done with this study. And I think it's been a really good one. So anyway, at least I've benefited a lot. (laughs) And it has been pretty amazing how all these different studies have come overlapping. Pastor Bell's message we found on the tapes about Satan. Um, you know, overlapping topics of anger, and then uh, Dr. Kistler's videos we watched recently uh, during um, during our vacation on uh, um, spiritual warfare. You know, and there's such an over- and I actually noticed Reformation Heritage books. They're selling three books right now. They're highlighting all related to this and spiritual warfare. So, as I mentioned to you that week. Um, Perhaps the Lord is preparing us for something. You know, and if the Lord would allow us for growth, we are certainly going to have more spiritual attacks. You might say, like, sometimes I feel, haven't we had plenty? Can't we get a break? <laughs> but if we're asking the Lord for growth of our church, we should expect that Satan will attack. He's especially going to attack any time we're close to an important development to get us to quit just to stop in the first place, okay? So have that in view, and in your own lives, as things are happening to you, recognize Satan's attacking you because he wants to stop whatever you're going to do with this study. He, he wants to stop whatever you're trying to do for him. Whatever growth and sacrifices you're making, he wants you to compromise and give up, okay? Uh, so what we're starting tonight again is the use for exhortation, use two of all that we've been learning recently related to, that's right, Juliana, amen, related to the second part of the, of the, the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. 
Okay, so exhortation. Apply this, brothers and sisters. Number one, and uh, you'll hear me say number one and two a few times. Sometimes it's parentheses, sometimes it's brackets, and I tend to get lost. What's the subheading of what? I'm, I'm not always sure. Hang in there with me, but I think it's, it'll still be beneficial for us. So number one, as we start with exhortation, take heed of sins of omission. Remember what omission is? Huh? Can't hear you. No, no, no. Omission. Omission. Omit. What does omit mean, the root of it? Leave it out. To not do it. I'm going to omit that. I've been, we can just ignore that and pass it over. Sins of commission are things that we actively do. Things of uh, omission are not doing what we've been told to do. Okay? So omission, uh, that, he says, take heed of sins of omission. Don't just think that everything's okay because you're not killing people. You know how many times I've heard certain people might say, well, I haven't killed anybody. Well, I haven't committed adultery. Sometimes they turn, learns out later. As I think about it, they were lying about the latter. But, uh, you know, also there's a lot of other things they're doing that they, that's okay if I play the lottery and waste my money. That was the excuse. I'm not killing anybody. Of course, uh, I'm pretty sure when I think about Jesus' application in the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, you were killing people too. You know, like we, we tend to think that if we aren't doing a lot of certain things, it's okay if we don't do a lot of things we probably should do. We excuse ourselves. Take heeds of sins of omission. And he gives us Matthew 23, 23. Uh, let's look at that together, okay? Matthew 23:23 Matthew 23:23 Sometimes what comes out of the mouth of babes is quite amusing. Matthew 23 Speaking of my own child. Gideon, don't forget, you got to behave or you're going to face daddy later. Yeah, you're not mom, and she's not Gideon, and daddy will help you remember that kid. Yeah, mommy's trying not to laugh. It is kind of funny. Okay, Matthew 23, verse 23. Yeah, don't tell me two-year-olds don't know what they're doing or understand things, eh? I'll give you an example. The other day, I was walking into the living room. He loves to play with the piano, and which is kind of, it's an electric piano, and... Um, I'm thinking, actually, we should think about piano lessons. If he, he seems to just be so interested, although he's interested in how everything works. But anyhow, so many times, turn that piano down, turn that piano down, because it's a, you know, a volume thing. You know? Well, when you know, I'm walking into the room. No, I haven't threatened him or anything. It's later, but he had turned the volume up again, and I didn't say anything. Just walking into the room, oh, he turns it down fast. He knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> don't tell me two-year-olds don't know things. That's a lie from Satan, if there ever was one. <laughs> Matthew, but of course he has a lot of growth and it's beautiful, a lot of, a lot of good things to report to, but you know, he wants to try to, uh, try to trick mommy that she's Gideon right now. Okay, no, that's not happening. Matthew 23, 23, we're, we're given this verse. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Watch out for sins of omission. 
they kind of get us to where we can become quite lazy in our duty. We are t- not just to try not to do horrible things. We're supposed to try to do good things. And remember the first week we studied this part of and lead us not into temptation. Thomas Watson said that the positive is implied. Let us make progress in piety. Now, when we read that, it makes me think, can you think of a sin of omission? Maybe I'm doing this and that or have the reputation of doing a lot of the good religiosity. But have you remembered uh, the story of the Good Samaritan? It's the religious people doing a lot of outward stuff, as Jesus is criticizing here, who neglect love and mercy. They walk right by a guy beaten and bloodied on the street. Nobody picks him up. He's left for dead. And we have to be careful. And I want to challenge us. One thing, beloved, it can be pretty intimidating when we have certain kinds of folks visit us unannounced at the end of a study or this or that. We've got to really work at being kind and compassionate to them like Jesus. It's dangerous. We can tend to want to put our guard up because, frankly, they usually are looking for something. And often uh, there, there could be a little danger. But may the Lord help us to be compassionate and be seeking to try to do good. And uh, not just, you know, come and praise the Lord. And then the first person he sends to us, get out of here. Right? And that's, that's a danger for us. There are times when certain people have to be told to leave. But uh, they need to prove that. May the Lord help us not to avoid the sins. Uh, help us to avoid sins of omission. Because what does it really lead to? I think pride. And pride, it comes before the fall. And when we had our men's study last week, related to love, it's opposite of that and often leads to unloving things. So don't think by a... First of all, you're guilty for not doing what God commands, Right? Uh, But also, uh, there's a spiral effect that can come from that. He writes, uh, he quotes 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. Every creature is sanctified by prayer. What's his point of quoting that when he's saying don't omit things? The sin of omission, huh? Yeah, and and the thing is, is if we if we omit prayer, that's a sin. But also, what's not going to happen? Prayer does what? It sanctifies. So if we're not praying, it's not neutral, right? Our old man is going to make us go down. We're going to go down in serving Christ. We're going to go down in our uh, following Christ. If we're not praying. So the sin of omissions will have their own effect on us. Right? Uh, I could argue, I think, the sin of the omission of being thankful could do a doozy on ourselves. For instance. Right? Uh, Getting bitter and ungrateful. Okay, so, number one, take heed of the sins of omission. These are exhortations. Watch out about thinking that uh, deliver me from evil is only about not doing bad things. Because not doing good things is doing bad. And will do bad in you. Okay. Uh, next, take heed of secret sins. Take heed of secret sins. Don't think because they're secret. Oh, well, as long as it's not hurting anybody else. Isn't that what everybody likes to say? Not so secret sometimes, right? Oh, you know, what, what nobody knows doesn't hurt anybody. Right? Uh, he gives us the example... Genesis 31 verse 34, Rachel would not let her father's images be seen, but she put them under her and sat upon them. What were they? Her father's idols. She claims it's the time of month, so he leaves her alone. He can't find, looks around the room, right? He Laban chases to find them, leaves. But uh, this is the sin of uh, hiding secret sins and thinking they won't be found out. Uh, Can you think of another example of hiding something and how God found it out and the bad results? 
I thought you would think of it, Mr. Renner, yeah. Uh, Joshua chapter 7, Achan, uh, they're not to take anything as they're defeating these people going into the promised land, but Achan takes some stuff, some r- r- valuable stuff, and he hides it. Well, God starts letting the whole company of the Israelites suffer loss and death in war. And they're like, wait a minute, Lord, you said you were going to give us victories. Well, it's because of Achan's secret sin, what he was hiding. And they find him out and he confesses. And he and his family are killed for it. The family obviously knew about it. I think it's safe to say, right? They were allowing a secret sin and festering it and it affected everybody. So take heed of secret sins. They're going to mess things up and they're going to just stop, confess, pray. There's a difference between private and public and how you do some of that. But don't think that you can just keep on going on and that there isn't going to be consequence. Number three, take heed, and this is where I'm going to take quite a bit of a, of a sidestep with Derek Thomas pretty soon, and then we'll come back to close. Take heed of your besetting sin, that which your nature and constitution are most inclined to. Um, Derek Thomas, I'm going to quote him in a minute, he says, we treat them like our pets. We spoil them like our pets. I'm going to read his whole statement because it's so good. I'm going to read a lot of his stuff tonight. But take heed of the besetting sin, that which your nature and constitution are most inclined to. They're the the ones you like the most. Watch out for those sins you like the most. It's so easy to give in to them even after many years because you like them so much. They've been such little pets to you. They make you like a pet makes you feel so important, right? Whatever it is. Watch out for your besetting sins. Uh, So he gives us Psalm... Uh, let's see if I can read this Roman numeral right. Forgive me. Uh, 18 verse 23. I kept myself from mine iniquity. I kept myself from mine iniquity. I think a sense of ownership of there's certain sins that are particularly mine. Like they're part of me. They're part of what I got to keep killing in my old man. Gideon. I will have to stop and take a break and pause the tape and take you to the other room right now and everyone will wait for me. And I've warned you about that, especially on a Wednesday night. There's no reason I can't pause the tape. Okay, Hebrews 12 verse 1 in particular says to continue this marathon of faith with all those before us in Hebrews 11. Set our eyes in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And it talks about in verse 1, not letting sins slow us down on the race that so easily beset us so easily trip us up right so easily distract us and slow us down in our run of the faith and christian faith uh, i'm going to go to a couple other scriptures uh you know let, let me go there first and if you'd like to follow with me feel free but I, i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of move along pretty quickly so feel free to just listen i won't be offended sometimes i will uh I'll give you the look if you're not following along, and I think you should. But uh, tonight I'm going to race through pretty quickly. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Wherefore, now talking about Hebrews 11, all those who by faith got through all kinds of troubles, troubles you and I have never known, right? Uh, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside... Oh, did I remember to turn on the the tape? Let me see. Oh, praise the Lord, I did I had this memory that I never turned the recorder on. I'm like, I'm far enough in. I don't want to start over. I might edit that part out. But wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now again, take heed of your besetting sin. That which your nature and constitution are most inclined to. So let's be careful. Lay aside every weight and sin that doth easily beset us. It would seem, he's clearly reflecting this text, but it would seem we, we would be seeming to understand that better by sins that are the ones that are so easy, right? Like thirst or exhaustion. If you think about what would slow you down and make you give up in the race, what are the things that are so easily, I'm just going to go back to this. It's easier, you know, I'm used to it. I'm comfortable in my old pants, right? (laughs) You know, we got to get used to, I got to keep the new pants and I got to keep that belt size, right? Whatever it is, I guess I had a little bit of a personal confession there, but (laughs) I have been doing better lately though. Uh, At least my wife tells me, of course I could sweet talk her to tell me that, but uh, Psalm 9 verse 16, if you'll turn with me, Psalm 9 verse 16, just this idea of watch out for besetting sins, Psalm 9. Of course, I have to do the math and go to the chapter 9 here. I'm going the wrong way here. Okay, Psalm 9, verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. What is snared? You think of that, Isaac? What's a snare? Like a trap, right? Right, you got this. You had the, his hand was the trap. Got his other hand, like an animal trap. Right, you put something in there to tempt them. They go in to get the food. They don't come out, and their neck has been chomped. Right. So uh, it says here again. Uh, oh, I lost my place. The Lord is known by the judgment which He executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. So besetting sins, sins that we particularly like and familiar, and are so easy to go back. Watch out for those right? Um, Doesn't mean we can't have victory over them. Doesn't mean they have to establish that we are a certain something according to modern psychology and can never be near or touch something. Uh, But we have to recognize the dangers and keep a hedge about us, right? Uh, Proverbs 5, I'm going to come back to Psalms. Proverbs uh, 5 verse 22 Proverbs 5, verse 22. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. His own sins, his own wickedness and iniquities, that's what's going to take him. You know, it's what's going to take him ultimately down to the, to the grave and to uh, eternal death. But there's that aspect of you get yourself wound up in your own sins of wickedness. They're going to be what takes you down. And those are the ones that you're particularly caught up in. The sins of the begetting sins. Watch out for those. Lastly, we'll go back to the Psalms, Psalm 90 verse 8. And then we'll uh, turn to some things from Derek Thomas tonight that I... I think relate really well to this study. That's pretty brief otherwise. As we're rounding the end of the study with Thomas Watson on the sixth petition of Lord's Prayer. Psalm 90 verse 8. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Now that also relates to the last one, take heed of secret sins, but God puts them all there on a table before us. They're going to catch up to us. They're going to become our master. They will master us. 
Well, here's where I'd like to share with you a few things from uh, Thomas, or, excuse me, Derek Thomas, and then we'll come back to Thomas Watson to close. Okay, uh, I think this is a good place. I was gonna, I was thinking of just uh, reserving it for the end of our study tonight, but I, I think it relates very well here, and I think you'll understand in a moment. Now. I'm not going to read you the whole chapter, don't get me wrong, but I am going to read you a number of things. Most of it will relate directly to what we're talking about right now, but I'm just going to give you all of what I'd like to share at this moment. This is in his chapter called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, and it's based on Colossians 3, 1 to 11. And it's from the book again, Our Ancient Foe, Satan's History, Activity, and Ultimate Demise. And uh, it's published by PNR Publishing and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We've enjoyed a lot of Derek Thomas's teachings on video, and uh, he's just as good in writing. Again, this is from his chapter, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, from Colossians 3, 1 to 11. He points out that there's two aspects to sanctification, and the first is... Uh, mortification. The other is vivification. They both have to happen, but as many will point out, mortification has to happen first. Kill the old man, Paul talks about, and put on more of the new man. You can't put on more of the new man if the old man's still there. He'll throw it right off, right? Um, I mean, boy, someone shared with me recently something I hadn't heard about someone in my life. And the person saw another person smiling all the time and said to this other person, I hate seeing that person smile all the time. Wasn't in this context, by the way. And uh, just hate seeing them smile all the time. And I said, you know, that's the problem. People who are unhappy hate people. I had somebody do that to me when I was in high school. Someone, I was walking up the bleachers at a wrestling match. I wrestled and uh, was sitting down with people in our group. And one of the mothers of another wrestler said to me, why do you just smile all the time? I guess I smiled a lot. And I, I was befuddled. By, I, what do you say to a mother or a teenager? I don't know. Why do you have to smile all the time? What? You know, I suppose if it looks insincere. But see, the thing is, is what that is showing is you can't have vivification, vivification, new life in Christ growing. The new man, if you're not willing to kill the old man, the old man wants nothing to do with it. Satan wants nothing with happiness. He wants you to be miserable. Okay, uh, He says, my task in this chapter, though, is to write about mortification. He's acknowledging vivification is an important subject. But as this book is about the devil and seeking to get us to sin, he's going to challenge us about sin and killing the sin in us. Okay, And he's reflecting the language of Paul in Colossians 3. Put to death. Strong language, right? Put to death. We must take the reality of ongoing sin seriously. Now, that's why we need to pray this all the time. What are we studying? And deliver us from evil. What particularly is he teaching us right now? The evil of sin. And he says we must take the reality of ongoing sin seriously. Certainly, there are pendulum swings in the course of church history. But it seems to me, at least in American evangelicalism, if not the world, evangelicalism, if not the world, it seems to me the pendulum has swung to anything goes and not taking sin seriously. To the point that in a lot of places we get, uh, they're ordaining homosexuals. And I just saw an article in USA Today. You'll see it referred to in my article last week on Reformation 21, if you saw it. Uh, there's an a elder, quote-unquote elder, in the P, I assume it's PCUSA, Presbyterian elder, who was lamenting on USA Today and crying like a little baby girl that he didn't get into seminary because he identifies as a devout Christian, and a transgender. I mean, we're getting to that place because we don't take sin seriously in the first place, you know? 
How many Christians are doing a whole lot of bad stuff and we're making light of it because it's all about God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and oh, we don't want to talk about a God of judgment and wrath. Well, that's exactly what Derek Thomas wants to talk about in this chapter. As he's reflecting, Paul, Gideon, that's another time here, pal. I can still see you. I like to joke about that in church, you know, even <laughs> through the years. I've been here, what, starting 14 years pretty soon. I said, sometimes I think people don't realize, I can see what you're doing. <laughs> this is not a television you're looking at. <laughs> All right. Uh, so he has three things he wants to talk about with us. Mindset, motives, and method. Looking at Colossians 3, looking at killing, mortific- mortifying sin in us. Mindset. Uh, motives and method. First mindset, he says this, our mindset, we need to deal with sin. We have to have a mindset that it's there and we have to deal with it. Well, a lot of times, how do we deal with it? I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to think about it. I want to pretend it's not there. Including the sin of fear. We have a new identity, he says, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We have a new identity. If you believe in Jesus, you are a saint. God reckons you to be holy and set apart in Christ. Romans 6.14 says, sin will have no dominion over you. But we'll often have Christians talking to us, well, what about this? I can't ever be around this because it just has this effect on me because it's my ism. No, sin will have no dominion over you in Jesus Christ. You have to be willing to kill it, not act like you are a victim to it. A very different way of dealing with things and of dealing with things. It's not to make light of these things, but knowing how to truly deal with them. Then he says this, yet we still sin. Though we're victors, we still sin. And we need to deal with that. And then he quotes what we've quoted in some of our radio ads. John Owen says this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that to what we, relates to what we talked about in besetting sins, right? Gideon! Gabriel, you need to help him behave. Sit with Isaac now. Sit with Isaac right now while I'm stopping the tape. Okay. We still sin. Be killing sin, John Owen says, or sin will be killing you. Again, it's not a neutral opportunity. Remember sins of omission. Watch out for secret sins. Watch out for besetting sins you love so much. Because you'll either be killing the sin or the sin will be killing you. While it makes you feel great about yourself and for a while it makes you feel great. But it's actually about to open the last part of the pill with the sweet stuff around it that is poison. Realize that we are able to deal with sin. That's the other thing, guys. This is an empowering statement. We are able to deal with sin. We are victors over sin and we are able to deal with sin. We got a whole bunch of people trained by psychologists in the church out there that think they can't can't ever do certain things because of whatever their past sins were. Paul says, we're not that anymore. That doesn't mean we don't need to be wise and keep a hedge, but it doesn't mean we have to walk around living like we are victims to Satan. We're not. We are able to deal with it. And what he's telling us, we have to deal with it. Mindset. Know what it is, call it what it is, and deal with it for what it is. He writes this, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to connect this. When Thomas Watson says, take heed of your besetting sin, that which your nature and constitution most inclined to. I like this sin. Okay, here's what he writes. Thomas Watson, or excuse me, Derek Thomas. Derek Thomas in his article, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, Our Ancient Foe. 
We must want to deal with sin. That's the thing, you know, as you work with people, over time, they prove you don't actually really want to because, for instance, and he's going to give an example, we're telling you the things you have to do in your life to really get rid of this, and they don't want to do it. They start to get really defensive. You have to actually really want to deal with your sin. And often when you do, the sin is not what are actually symptoms. They're actually symptoms of a deeper problem that you like to say is your identity or your ism because that's more comfortable than a pet for you. We must want to deal with sin. I'm talking about sins that have become like your pets, he writes. Like your dog or your cat or whatever pet you have. The thing with pets is that you love to spoil them. My dog is absolutely ruined. He sleeps on our bed. He's 80 pounds, and he would push us out of bed if he could. (laughs) I have spent a fortune on training him, and it was a waste of money. When people come to the house, and we are perhaps giving them some coffee, and maybe a cookie or two, the dog is right there underneath them, slobbering, drooling, and we say, excuse the dog, and so on. That's the house I don't visit often. (laughs) But he says, we treat our sins like that, like a spoiled dog that we don't have any control over because we just love it so much. We spoil them and we excuse them. But the question of mindset remains, do you want to deal with sin? Because if you don't, you might as well stop reading now. If you want compromise, you'll get it in large doses. Maybe that's the issue. That you're content with a certain kind of Christian life that isn't extreme. That's the problem with our society. Anyone who is extreme about something is labeled a fundamentalist or a radical. Or should I say, a Puritan. That's me, inserting. He goes on to say, we want the world to love us and like us, and so we want to become like the world, excusing our sins and refusing to face them. Do you desire to deal with sin? Do you want to kill sin? Do you want to get rid of it? Do you want it out of your life? That's the first thing. Do you actually want to deal with it? Because you're not going to kill something you don't want to deal with because it's going to try to kill you back, right? Anybody ever go hunting, try to trap a wild animal? You go after it with a knife or something? That thing ain't going to just say, okay, I'll lie down and let you slip my throat. It's going to try to poke you with its anchor, right? uh, What do you call it? Antler right in your eye. Take you out, right? If not with a hoof. Okay, so the first thing again is the mindset. You have to want to kill sin. Secondly, the motives. You reap what you sow. Galatians Galatians 6, 7 and also Colossians 3, 5 to 6. And the motive for you, you reap what you sow, in uh, Colossians is, the wrath of God is coming because of these sins. The wrath of God is coming because of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That's Colossians 3, 5 to 6. The wrath of God is coming on you because of these sins. That's a pretty good motive, and he wants to point that out. And he's going to point out, this is not... This is not, uh, you know, works-based stuff. This is just reality of the scriptures. He says, why do you need to deal with sin? Because if you don't, the wrath of God is coming. How do you know that you're in Christ? 
Part of the answer to that question is your ongoing sanctification. Is there fruit? Matthew 7.20. He goes on to say this again. You reap what you sow. We tend to think of things in short-term ways. Put a small coin before your eyes and it will blot out a check for a million dollars that is made out in your name. You can't see the check because all you can see is the small coin before your eyes. You you say, well, I have this coin, never perceiving the true treasure that's right in front of you. Think about that. You got a check for a million dollars on your desk, but you put a quarter right in front of your eye. You will not see it. There's an old ad, uh, excuse me, he says this. There's an old saying that goes, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act. By the way, children, we're talking about reaping and sowing. We're talking about farming. Plant a seed, and this is what grows. It starts with planting the seed, right? Sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. So what will be your ultimate harvest? If you don't deal with ongoing sin, if you just leave it alone, if you treat it as a pet... If you feed it and maybe you give it a secret little room in your house. When no one is at home and you think, well, I can do this and no one will know. God does know. Paul is saying that on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. One of the motivations for putting sin to death is that we belong to a family. We have obligations to one another. This is the one anotherism of the New Testament. By the way, I'm skipping a lot with what I'm giving you, so there's more context. He says, it's not just about you. I sometimes think that the anthem for Christians is, Oh, say, can you see what's in it for me? I think he's right. I mean, you see it by how people serve, how they show up. It's a worship service alone, right? He says one of the direst threats to the church today is internet pornography. It's not the first time I've seen that. But by the way, direst, I looked it up. It relates to dire, like dire straits. Not the rock band, although they're pretty good. But dire, you know, we're in dire straits. Direst threats means really really troublesome, problemsome, problemsome. I don't know that problemsome is a word, actually. But you know what I mean. One of the direst threats to the church today is internet pornography. Uh, I'm going to leave that quote in because of another, another anecdote he shares. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Thinking about yourself. That's what this means. It's idolatry. What is sin? Sin is idolatry. But he points out particularly thinking about yourself. And in our men's studies with... Uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, in his book on charity, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, he's pointing that out a lot. The opposite of love is selfishness. So then he writes this, Each of us must ask, how can I possibly sin and do this against the family? I remember one time in high school after I did something, and then he puts in parentheses, and it's none of your business just what I did, exclamation point. He goes on to say, my older brother, who is four years older than I, pulled me aside as I was walking down the corridor and took me into a corner. I thought he was going to kill me. He said to me, like some mafioso from Sicily, you're bringing the name of the family into disrepute. This happened about 50 years ago. 
almost half a century, and yet I can hear him say it as though it were yesterday. I was letting the family down. You reap what you sow, and you belong to God's family. Have a think about what we do and how it affects our family and our family name and our God's name and our church's name. We're told whatever we do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him in verse 17 of Colossians 3. I'm using his translation for convenience here in the book. He writes this, everything to him, doing everything to God, which means not ourselves. Very often, what we want to do is the opposite of for God, especially it always is when it's sin. He writes this, the fact is that we kid ourselves. We think we can leave Jesus outside the door for a minute. We can go into a room, we can turn on our computers, we can watch something, and Jesus isn't there. We've left him outside. We'll pick him up on the way out. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul does something absolutely shocking. He's talking about fornication, about certain folk in Corinth who were visiting prostitutes. Do you remember what he says? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Verse 15. When you sin, you take Jesus with you, he writes. And of course, when that's the case, we're ultimately taking one another there too. He writes this. Motivation. The strongest possible one. How can I possibly do this thing that killed the Lord Jesus? How can I possibly do this thing against my Lord Jesus who died for me because of it and to save me from it. Gideon, I can keep stopping if I have to. Obey mommy. So he gave us the mentality and the motive and now the method of killing sin. Explore a method, he says. First, deprive sin of its opportunity. Genesis 39 verse 9, Joseph was given the opportunity of adultery with Potiphar's wife, and he said, how can I do this thing and sin against my God? Relates, I think, to the, to the motivation. How can I do this thing? He fled. He ran away from it. Don't give sin an opportunity. Stay away from it. Then he writes this, Derek Thomas. I was speaking to a young man recently. He's in Christian ministry and got caught up in internet pornography. It's become a habit, and there are triggers that set it off. He is so firmly in the grip of it, in such a habit of it, that he cannot prevent himself from doing it now. I said, well, the Congaree River lies three or four blocks from the church. Let's walk down there and bring your laptop. Let's throw it in the river. He said, no, 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 I need this. This is part of my work. Well, I replied, until you're ready to do that, I can't help you. If this is how serious the habit has become, then you need to deprive yourself of that opportunity. You need to have a computer where everybody can see it. You can't allow yourself to be alone with one. Whatever it takes, deprive yourself of the opportunity. Run, flee from it. I recall my systematics professor in seminary mentioned once he used to be at a different seminary, another reformed seminary you'd know well, and I think he said he he took at least maybe seven laptops from seminary students 
He didn't ask. Because of the confession, he grabbed it and took it. And you know, it was sad to find out our computer lab room in the the seminary I went to infested with obvious people going to it all the time. Now to be fair, or at least to be hopeful, uh, other schools, Christian schools, ministries though, were allowed to be part of our campus and teach classes and do resources, but what's that telling us? I bring, I, I don't skip this because of what he said earlier. This is one of our biggest problems. Okay. Uh, he says, since we're talking about method, we also need to learn to oppose sin universally. We need to just oppose sins of all kinds all the time. Sins have names just like our pets, he says. Oppose sin universally. Third, develop, this is still under uh, method, develop the graces that are contrary to sins. A lot of times we're trying to help people, well, where were you for church? You know, <laughs> what are you reading in your Bible? Why are you reading it like that? It just sounds judgmental all the time. Why are you always sending these messages to other people, challenging them about what you think is wrong with them? Stop doing that, because almost every time that leads to a fall, we've observed. You know, Develop the graces that are contrary to sin. Focus on that. Focus on your devotion. Focus on worship. Focus on service. Focus on thankfulness. Fourth, be willing to do what is costly. And he's kind of talked about that already. Verse 5 in Colossians 3, which is also in Romans, put to death. And Derek Thomas will say, oh, you think he's just speaking figurative? No, he's speaking very, very seriously. Yes, metaphorically in some sense, but very, very seriously. Oh, to remind you, Matthew 5, verse 30, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So if you think Paul's being too strong, I think he says, you know, people think Paul, oh, he's a very type A personality. He's being kind of extreme. It is the word of God. But let's go to our Lord Jesus. If that's causing you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, right? Better to go to hell without an extra arm than, to, uh, than not to go to heaven. Better to go to heaven, excuse me, without an extra arm than to, heaven, to hell with both of them. That's uh, Matthew 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. There's the eye. Now, he's going to speak very graphically. Ready for this, kids? Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it in the garbage. Now, definitely this is not literal, but if it really, because it's a heart, that's the issue, right? If we actually literally tore our heart out, we'd be dead. But the point is to be that serious about sin. He writes this. Derek Thomas writes this. Can you imagine that? I want you to try to imagine putting your fingers in your eye socket and wrenching out your eye. You don't have to think about it, do you? Oh, no, he said, he says, you don't want to think about it, do you? This is unimaginably horrible to think about, but that's what Jesus said. That's Jesus' approach to mortification. Kill it strangle it deprive it of oxygen until it can't breathe and it's dead not mostly dead until it's dead you know how those movies go the bad guy the good guy it's like you're always like why did you just leave him laying in there why did and then the bad guy gets up later right and like why didn't you kill him all the way you know isaac real fast not that I should suggest those kind of movies necessarily, but yeah, go ahead. In Africa, you know, when like, or just anywhere in the world, when, you know, when I talk to Brendan or Derek, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, 
Wow. Yeah, he's pointing out, uh, he watches a lot of documentaries and uh, animals, and he says the, pre- the predators, when they get their prey, they usually hold it by its neck until it's dead before they start eating it, right? And they know, they wait, yeah, because the thing might get up, run away, or give you trouble, right? Thank you, Isaac. Uh, then he says, uh, deprive it of a, kill sin or it will kill you. Kill a sin or part of a sin every day. That's how we have to be living and praying this prayer all the time. And deliver me from evil. Kill sin in me every day. He says, that's a measure of your commitment to the Lord Jesus. Do you want to kill sin all the time? Is that your mentality? Are you motivated? And are you looking at methods of how to do it better and better? What is the evidence, my friend, that you are a Christian, he writes. Is there enough evidence to convict you for being in union with Christ? One of those pieces of evidence is that you are constantly dealing with indwelling sin. You have to deal with sin for the rest of your life. A lot of people, that's the problem. They, they want an easy, get out of this hellish lifestyle free. No, you have to kill it all the time. And then they give back into it. Well, I didn't think it was going to be this hard. Welcome to life with Christ. You've got to fight these things. And I actually think it's helpful, though, to learn. You're always going to be fighting this. Don't think you can say this is done. Watson has brought that up. Right when you think you're free of a certain thing, especially besetting sin, that's right when you're going to step right into it again. You've got to be killing it diligently, militantly every day. You are never done killing the enemies until we have the final victory when we are brought into heaven or raised on the last great day. Onward Christian soldiers marching on to war. Gideon. If I see you hit your mother again, I will stop. Working through this two and a half phase here. He goes on to say this. You have to deal with sin, and we're almost done. Uh, You have to deal with sin for the rest of your life. I had a tree in the back of my yard in Belfast. He's not from America. Got a great accent. I think he's Welsh. Uh, Where I had lived for 18 years. We were living in the city, and we had a tiny little backyard. The tree had grown to a proportion that was threatening to overtake the entire yard, and I needed to cut it down. I didn't make a great deal of money, and being cheap, as my wife says, I tried to remove it myself. Little by little, I would go out there and hack away at it, starting at the top and working my way down. After several months of this, I reached the stump took a saw, and sawed it off. I thought, there, it's done. Then to my horror, the next spring, shoots were coming up out of the ground. Sin is like that tree. Sometimes you deal with sin, and it is gone for the rest of your life, but most likely, you're going to have to deal with it over and over and over. Just when you're in your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, and you thought you were done with this sin, back it comes. That's when we need to remember the minds. By the way, he's kind of around that age (laughs) when he's writing this. Uh, That's when we need to remember the mindset, the motives. Well, I think he is. I guess I need to double check the date there. But he says this. That's when we need to remember the mindset, the motives, and the method of mortification. We have to watch out for those sins that so easily beset us, he says, our pets, that we should slaughter. 
he goes on, back to Thomas Watson, a few, a few things to close. Uh, that sin which a man most cherishes and to which all other sins are subservient is the sin which is most tended and waited upon. So these are actually sub-numbers in the brackets. I can tell now they're under take heed of your besetting sin. So we're still under that category. He's making sub-points. I'll read again. That sin which a man most cherishes and to which all other sins are subservient is the sin which is most tended and waited upon, or as Watts, uh, excuse me, as Derek Thomas says, there are pets. Number two, under besetting sins, the sin which a man loves not to be reproved for is the darling sin. Now that word darling, how do we usually use the word darling to our loved ones? Oh, my darling, to our wife, or oh, my darling, you know, or we often say that to our little girls, hey, darling, you know. Uh, the sins that we don't like anybody to correct us for, those are our darlings. Those are our little darlings. And, well, and frankly, don't we know what it's like to try to talk to a parent about correcting their child? Thank you for bearing with me as we train our children here. Uh, you know, we were, I was, uh, I was at uh, or I was at the first week of academy and while I was on the playground and I was pleased to see uh, Gabriel playing very well and sharing his bubbles with a two-year-old although it was smart and the mother pointed out it was her son it was good that he also gave a caveat you can borrow my bubbles but you do have to give them back <laughs> but while we were watching them towards the end waiting on Isaacs to finish I, I heard the kindergarten teacher our, our son is in saying to a mommy your kid can't come back first day well, at orientation the week before, he almost drove Fernanda nuts. This is the crazy thing. I know it sounds crazy. She expects a kindergartner to know how to sit still and listen and obey. And she said, your child can't do that. Your child is not ready for school. Your child won't respond to anything I say. And he's disrupting the whole class. Of course, I heard that they talk for a long time. He says, you can't come back. Can't come back. Affects everyone else, right? I can't teach the rest of the children like this. The parents are paying customers. I didn't hear it all, and that's me speaking, pretending. But I did overhear the mom later. She wasn't mean, but she was making excuses for him. But Fernanda saw the real problem in class. She didn't tell him to stop once. Even when the teacher was asking the children to be quiet. And guess what? Fernanda couldn't hear a thing. Thankfully, the second period, nobody was there for orientation. She went back and got individual attention. Parents can't stand unless they're very spiritual and they truly want to raise the kids right. They can't stand you telling them what to do with their children. Well, he says, a man who, uh, whatever sin he does not like to have corrected. Don't tell me that that's supposed to be corrected. I don't want to talk about that. You don't understand. That's your little darling sin. That's your little pet. Number three, under besetting sins. The sin which has most power over a man and most easily leads him captive is the beloved of the soul. Whatever is the easiest thing to lead you captive is what you love the most, the sin. Number four, the sin which men use arguments to defend is the darling sin. We'll make all these kinds of excuses, right? We'll try to reason it away. That's our little darling. Number five, that sin which most troubles a man and flies in his face in an hour of sickness and distress is the beloved sin. And, and, and this is one thing uh, men need to recognize uh, when, he gets to, when Derek Thomas gets the pornography. Usually men are particularly feeling stressed and disrespected. That's when you are most prone to give in to that kind of thing. 
And whatever the sin is, you got to recognize when you are sick, when you are stressed, when you are troubled, that's when you are most likely to give in to your pet, your little darling. Watch out. Look for the red flags. Uh, number five, that, oh, I read that. Number six, the sin which a man is most unwilling to part with is the darling sin. The one that, yeah, and I'll talk about it and I'll kill a lot of the elders' time on it. But in the end, I'm not going to do anything you've advised me to do because I don't really want to stop. It's my darling. It's become my lover, my best friend, my closest companion, my pet. I'm unwilling to part with it. It is the Delilah, he says. It is the Delilah, the beloved sin. Gideon, we're almost done, but my, 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 what I'm saying continues. You end like this, and I'm taking you to the other building. Good boy. Uh, one darling sin lived in sets open a gap for Satan to enter. You know, you got that little pet sin. Sometimes our doors, for the cats at least, you know. We have one in our house. We never had a cat. It's part of the door of the garage before we move there. You got a little door. Let that little cat in and out on its own whenever it wants, right? That's our pet sin. You come on in wherever you want. I got this little door open. Flaps away. It doesn't really keep out anything. You come on in and out anytime you want. Number four. Oh, excuse me. That's a good place to stop because uh, we're going back to parentheses, not brackets. Uh, so we'll pick it up next time. So what we want to remember here is exhortations one through three. Take heed of sins of omission. Take heed of secret sins. And we had a lot of attention to this with a, with a long uh, insert of excerpts from Thomas, uh, Derek Thomas. Uh, take heed of your besetting sin. That which your nature and constitution are most inclined to. That which you make your pets not recognizing, I would add, that they are actually your master. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you alone are our master. Let us forsake and put to death every other sin, omission, secret sins, and particularly tonight, our little darlings, our little pets, our besetting sins that we are most inclined to, especially to give in to when we are struggling or sick or depressed or troubled or stressed. Lord, we pray, thinking on these things, lead us not into temptation, and but deliver us from evil. We pray in Jesus' name for your glory, for your honor, and for our good and the good of the church and the good of our witness. All your people said, Amen.